Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark. It is the week ending 19th of October 2018. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to jump onto our website, vetgurus.com, and also look at our Patreon site, patreon.com vetgurus, and that's where you can throw us a bone, can't they, Mark, our, our listeners, and, and give us a little bit of money to help pay for all our costs of producing this incredibly high-quality podcast <laughs> that we have every week. And speaking of costs, Mark, we are going to draw the winner of our competition, our episode 50 winner. But before we do that, what have you been up to, Mark? Well, I've, it's been all meetings this week, Brendan. It's been all meetings. It's been a bit like, I don't know, a little bit. But I did a bit of training earlier in the week, a bit of governance training. Um, that was um, a bit eye-opening and um, filled in some of the gaps for the, the uh, you know, I've been, I was saying to you before we started that, um, that I'm cracking a decade of being involved in various um, committees and regulatory bodies and um, and I thought it was about time I did a bit of um, training and, and obviously a lot of the stuff I felt I was already across. But those sessions of training often do help us just fill in the gaps, don't they, Brendan? Well, they, they do. <laughs> they do. Sorry. I, I was trying. Oh, I won't tell you what I was trying to do then. But, yes, they do. Training, especially training in how to um, podcast is, is very important, <laughs> isn't it, Mark? And um, paying attention to your um, co-host, yes. Um, no, that's good. Um, it's always good to learn stuff is my, um, my, my bottom line with that, Mark, um, because when you think you know it all, you know nothing, as they say in the classics, um, Mark, yes. So let's jump into our email, speaking of, speaking of not knowing things. Um, we had a great email from um, one of our uh, listeners, Kelly. Um, so hi, Kelly. And um, she says, um, well, it's a pretty long email, isn't it, Mark? But she does men- mention a couple of our episodes, and she has a bit of a query about one of our episodes, episode 49. We discussed different methods to bring female ferrets out of persistent estrus. And Kelly goes on to say, I was surprised to hear your concerns regarding the use of covinin, polygestone in ferrets, which is a very regular treatment used in the clinic I work at. I've done a quick literature search and not found much to suggest that polygestone is dangerous, but that other progestogens, such as medroxyprogesterone, can have side effects such as pyometra, cystic endometrial hyperplasia and alopecia. I was hoping you could provide some references or, or chat a little bit about it and um, any side effects you have personally encountered with that particular product. Well, I'm going to throw it over to you, Mark, because because we were to talking off air about this and you did see a case that you suspected was causing problems with a ferret that you used um, covinin in. And it is, it, I, this is one of the real values of, um, of you and I not just talking into the void, but actually having a dialogue because, um, you know, I have a little bit of a tendency when just speaking into the void to um, make outlandish statements and, um, and I probably was just, you know, uh, a little bit um, generic. Just thinking about uh, the the prostagents as a group, and particularly medroxyprogesterone, um, uh, rather than specifically prologestone. Um, though I've got to say that that probably didn't come across in the the uh, the podcast, um, even though we, uh, um, you know prepare the script many times over and, and rehearse many times. <laughs> Sometimes things slip through, Brandon. Um, but, um, I do. But I do, I, I have been, uh, and this is, you know, I don't know, one of the, the faults, I suppose, of uh, general practice that um, that I have had a case where, um, where I felt um, that uh, the, uh, how did you pronounce it? I always have pronounced it covenant. Did you put the emphasis on the second syllable? Oh, here we oh, go again. Anyway, yes. um, I did. Have- we, we have both. Um, we have both, and I'm sure your one will be your pronunciation will be correct, Mark. Um, Covenant. <laughs> oh, let's call it Covenant. Um, but um, it, uh, I did have a case where we were using it, and I um, and I 
felt the, the, the consequences, the problems that the ferret had subsequently were likely to be due to the drug. I can't, um, you know, it's the classic personal experience rather than a long case series. Um, and it, and in the typical way of practice, once I had a problem, I switched over to, um, HCG. When we were talking off air, I was prompted and we were considering Kelly's thoughtful email. Um, I was prompted to think that I probably have had as many problematic, uh, um, there's Lauren implants as I have had, um, Covenin problems. And the one treatment that I can honestly say I've had no trouble with has been uh, HCG. So um, so I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that uh, Covenin, it's uh, uh, registered for this purpose. It's uh, There's published evidence to suggest it'll do its job. Um, I tend to steer clear of the the uh, progestogens in general, um, but, um, but I don't think, uh, I think it's fairly safe to say you're not doing less than the gold standard in using it kelly yes i, w- I would agree i mean I, I i must admit i have n- had very little use uh experience with the use of that particular product and i have used the older generation progestogens like megastrol acetate and M- mpa and um have had some concerns with them in the past with with um uh, relating to hyperplasia and pyometrin um cases right? but but none with um Covenant or Covinan, whichever way we pronounce it there. Um, so, so yes, um, I mean, the interesting thing with that is, that, and it's the reason why I tend to just use the um, HCG, um, the Corallon, um, which is a brand um, that we have here in Australia, I think, which is probably universally used, is that, yeah, I, I have not seen a single um, episode of a problem with it at all. And because it is not a progestogen, um, I, I just potentially, potentially always in the back of my mind be worried about with potential side effects um, with that particular group of products. But, um, yes, I, I certainly have not seen any case. And I um, like Kelly, I did probably more more involved literature search because I wanted to see if we could find any um, cases reported in the literature and that the result was zero. So she's correct in that there aren't any published um, reports of that there. The interesting thing with that particular drug, Mark, um, just things you've um, trivia you probably don't need to know. Um, it, it was um, the original study that was done by a ferret club um, in, in, in the UK and it has been used for many years in the UK um, as a um, as reproductive control and bringing them, um, stopping that um, estrogen toxicity condition. That was the Wessex Ferret Club um, back in the 1980s and it's um, a little bit famous for being um, one of the... One of the um, situations where an actual um, club, um, an animal club um, or people interested in that particular species got together and um, pushed forward with trying to um, do a little clinical trial Um, and then they um, notified their local vets about it and then they got involved with with the um, with the study with it so yeah it was um, but so when you look at it from that perspective, I suppose, um, since the uh, mid-1980s or so, it has been used in, in the UK and it still is recommended there um, as, a, as a good, um, a useful product to use, then, um, yeah, I, I don't think um, there's anything um, untoward about using um, uh, covinin or co- covinin um, with um, with ferrets. Um, so, yeah, that's my long-winded an- answer to saying, um, yes, Ke- Kelly, um Good pickup and um, well done. And you are in the draw for the grand prize for our fiftieth episode prize, um, as with everybody else. And Mark, I've what I've done is I've taken everybody who's entered, and I had to get a slightly bigger bowl than the one I originally <laughs> put the entries into. I um, wrote, I, I, I tore up lots of pieces of paper and I've um, folded them all over and I put them in this bowl which I've got down on the floor next to me. And um, the doggies aren't in the room, so I don't think anybody's chewed them up. So I will um, reach down. Just let me um, – this is what we call live recorded podcasting here. And um, I'll mix them up a bit and we'll see who's won the prize. Now, Mark, can you just mention again what what um, what the people are going to win or well, what the person I, I, will be winning? I did mention um, 
uh, a potential price. I don't know that we actually confirmed it, Brendan, but the idea was um, maybe a couple of the, um, my favourite uh, photographs of birds done up into a little bit of a, a framing arrangement. But um, I'm open to suggestion from my co-host if, uh, you know. I, th- I think that would be fantastic and I'd, um, well, I'd, I would treasure such a, a brilliant photograph myself. So, yes, uh, I think maybe one of one of your prints, uh, if it was framed, even better. But if, if the winner is from overseas, it may be a little bit tricky. So it might have to just be a, a print in a little rolled up tube for them and they may have to frame it themselves and... I will, from my side, I will um, provide um, one of um, the reptile books, um, signed book of the um, reptile and amphibian care, and um, which will be personally signed by one of the co-authors, um, which is myself. <laughs> and um, we might try and see if we can throw in a couple of other things as well. So we'll see. So we'll see. So this is our 50th prize um, giveaway. And um the winner is Verity Lysart, and um, I can't remember where, where Verity was from. I'll try and, if you want to, um, actually, if you want to jump onto the first news story, Mark, and I'll go and look up where um, the email I received from Verity. But congratulations, Verity, and um, we will be getting, um, we will be sending you an email shortly. We'll wait till the podcast is out for a few days, um, so you can be surprised by listening to your name being read out, and then we will contact you about your best postal address to send all the goodies to. So, Mark, do you want to jump into the first little news stories, which is about um, catch and release of fish? I do indeed, Brendan. This is a story that, um, well, actually um, touches me personally because one of my boys um, has become quite the... um the angler, quite the angler. Um, in fact, last weekend, he spent the whole of the weekend on a boat on Lake Macquarie in a fishing competition. And um, and there is a big element of catch and release that's involved in the sport of angling for him. Um, and so this article from the Mother Nature Network, which talks about... Um, well, how benign is catch and release on these fish? What effect does it have on them? Um, and I suppose it's not that surprising um, that when you actually do some research, um, there are some consequences to the rather stressful event of um, hooking a fish and pulling it out of the water. Um, there's Anglers will often say that, um, that it's a you know, a, a relatively harmless procedure, um, while at the other extreme, maybe um, some of uh, the more protesting, um, uh, the, the, the people who um, would be concerned about the cruelty involved might think um, that it's it's just too much to ask the fish to go through. And there is, in the context of that, there is, a um, you know, an argument about how much pain um, fish feel um, and of course, uh, I think I speak for both of us, Brendan, in saying that um, uh, there's um, mounting evidence, um, and our experience both puts us in the the um, context of the, in the section of people who believe that fish do feel pain, um, and so seeing how they cope with a hook is a good thing. So there's some new research where um, an international team of scientists um, caught some fish. Um, and uh, they caught um, a bunch of them, um, uh, shiner perch. Um, they caught a bunch by net, and they caught a few of them on a hook and line. The fish were immediately transported to a laboratory where they were monitored and photographed and filmed while they were being fed. Fortunately, they were all eager to eat, but the ones that were caught by hook had significant difficulties doing so. So. Whether it was the uh, trauma to, so the basic mechanism that most fish, most predatory fish, and they're the ones who uh, have a tendency to be caught, they have a rapid expansion of the oropharynx, which draws water and prey into the mouth. Now, uh, the changes to that, um, you know, the structure by the trauma of the hook, either additional holes in the wall of that uh, um, developing space or um, damage to the actual cartilaginous structures which cause it to expand, is obviously going to make it a little bit difficult for the fish to eat. And this was the precise finding these researchers found. Um, 
The fish that had the worst mouth injuries exhibited a reduction in the speed with which they were able to draw prey into their mouths. Um, this was the case even when barbless hooks were used. Obviously, barbless hooks uh, will cause less trauma. All the fish were safely released after the experiment, um, and uh, obviously that will lead to the thought that there should be you know, how long does this effect last and what is the um, the effect over the totality of the life and survivability of the fish? These are future experiments, but it's it's good to see that people are, um, uh, uh, you know, looking at these things and trying to assess how, how much damage is done by what is generally considered um, a relatively um, uh, friendly, a relatively... Um, uh, ecologically friendly procedure the catch and release process and so yeah um, i'll have a have a talk to renwick and we'll um we'll compare some notes i reckon brendan and what do you think he will be saying to you did how did he go in the competition (laughs) (laughs) hey i i don't know i don't i know that he caught um uh seven flathead and two uh flounder um i don't know where that put him in the you know i think it was one of those um it's actually quite technical now. They hang the fish up against a scale, um, you know, get a weight and get a length, take a photo, and they send that to a central repository. And so um, they, they can literally be fishing pretty much anywhere and be a part of the competition. So um, uh, I don't know that he won, but I don't think he came last. And will you be advising him not to perform this activity in the future? That's the question. I think my my parental <laughs> style is to present my um, offspring argument <laughs> with the, present the evidence um, and let them make their own mind up. I generally find, I don't know what your experience is, Brendan, but when I tell them what they should do, uh, funnily enough, it doesn't always seem to pan out that they do it. Yeah, they don't give it. They don't. Um, they can't be bothered listening to a thing I say as far as my girls go. Yes, so it's usually the opposite. Yes. Okay. So news. Uh, so um, I couldn't find um, Verity's um, email address, even though I had a um, down on the list of people to um, to be in the competition. So Verity, can you please send us an email? Vet, vetgurus at gmail I've done a quick search for your email um, to us to enter the competition, and for the life of me, I cannot find it, Mark. I don't, it's edited off into the interwebs. It's disappeared. So we may have a second draw next week, and I'll keep all the little bits of paper, and um, I might be, we, might, we may be pulling out a, um, a new winner if we don't hear from Verity. But um, in the meantime, I will do a bit of a search for her email because, um, yeah, I, I had a little, a little uh, a, a note pad um app where i listed everybody who entered and um she was definitely down there so bit of a mystery but we'll we'll, we will get um we will get your photograph out to somebody mark um i'm sure um whether it's this week or next week um the next news story is um from um a a very fancy um surgical um technique or or procedure one of a kind that was performed by our our good friend shanks z shanks at singapore um Singapore Jurong Bird Park. Um, so it was, um, and it it, got, it ended up on a lot of the news services, didn't it, Mark? Including um, one of our favourite ones that we quote from Mother Nature Network, and it's about a hornbill that um, gets a second chance at life with a 3D printed prosthetic. And uh, this particular hornbill at the Singapore's Jurong. Bird Park, the Great Pied Hornbill, developed an aggressive tumour of the um, of the cask, and uh, they did a biopsy on it and confirmed that there was um, a pretty nasty neoplasm there. So they decided to chop it off, and uh, they. I, I did contact Shanks um, separately about this particular thing, and I said, "Is all the reports in the in the um, in the news articles correct?" And he said, "Yes." Um, the the most difficult thing he said was having the 3D printed prosthetic um, developed, which they they had a collaboration between the Parks team and um, the Keogh National University of Singapore Connective Ubiquitous Technology for Embodiment Centre. How's 
that for a name, Mark? Um, comma, the NUS Smart Systems Institute, the NUS Centre for Addictive Ma- Addictive Manufacturing Additive. and the Animal Clinic. Not addictive. Additive. Oh, it is addictive. Oh, it's, it's pretty addictive. This. Uh, imagine writing out a um, little letter to this place. Um, um, thank goodness for emails these days, Mark. You'd, re- you'd be on the back of the envelope trying to write to somebody who, who works at that place. Um, yeah, so they developed a 3D printed prosthetic cask based on a CT scan, I think, that they, they did. Um, they originally did a CT guided biopsy and, um, yeah, they performed the surgery on September the 13th using an oscillating saw to remove portions of the infected cask and then used a drill guide to affix a prosthetic dental resin. And on one of the uh, news sites, I don't think it was a Mother Nature Network one, but um, one of the other ones, you could see uh, a brief video of the procedure. And um, it was pretty fancy stuff, wasn't it, Mark? I was very impressed with Shanks and his team there at Jurong Bird Park. Well done, guys and gals. And um, yeah, it was a bit of a good news story. And the the um, I, I thought the the icing on the cake with this one, Mark, was they had pictures of the of the um, of the bird um, several weeks later, um, where the prosthetic attachment had uh, developed a yellow coloration because it was managing to preen itself, Mark, and and getting the yellow pigment from the preen gland, which was um, then sticking into the or, 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 or adhering to the to the um, prosthetic. So good job. Well, this is. The, I just wanted to say that it was a good job. Shanks has done like outstanding work, and you know we've talked about prosthetics before, and um, and by and large, um, I think they're all hype and and um, by and large, n- not not usually much. Uh, you know, they don't. In my experience, at least, they often don't live up to the hype, and particularly bill prostheses. Um, but I think this is one of those examples where. Um, selection of the precise correct case and application of um, of the uh, um, the appropriate uh, um, use of the prosthetic. I think it's going to make a um, real difference to this bird's length of life and quality of life. So, hats off to Shanks. Yes, he's done a. They've done a fantastic job with this, and it's and it's great to have these collaboration between these different institutes. And I'm sure the the um, that place with the very long name who made the prosthesis um, would have had a great time um, making that. It would have been um, good fun to do, and I'm sure they would have um, probably done it at a discount or or maybe for free as um, a bit of a novel item to to produce. Um, what's your second news story, Mark? Oh, this is you uh-huh. love this one, don't I you? Do love yes. this one. Um, this this uh, um, now, where did we get this article? I don't know. Just um, it, uh, it. I don't think this was from the conversation. Uh, excellent. Um, the the one of my favourite sites, the conversation. Um, and the con- I love the conversation because of it. Um, you know the the uh, intellectual rigor. Generally speaking, the articles in the conversation have a higher level of intellectual rigor, and this one is no exception, Brendan. Um, This is the Friday essay, which talks about the rise of the bin chicken um, and actually goes so so far as to call our Australian white ibis the totem for modern Australia. Um, And this wonderful article talks a little bit about... um, the ibis's natural history, the way that uh, it's a bird um, of the coastal uh, uh, region, uh, waterways. Um, but over the last, um, I don't know, what would it be, 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years, um, it's definitely become a bird of the city. Um, and it has um, adapted to city life and found a ready food source um, in the stuff we discard, in the garbage. Um, and so they've there's a whole bunch of very cool names, Brendan. Um, obvi- yes. The obvious bin chicken, but um, tip turkeys, sandwich snatchers, picnic pirates. I think I'd be very keen to hear what other people have heard as far as um, nicknames yes. for the ibis. Um, but they sort of do, you know, they're they're um, they're uh, uh, um, you know ability to survive in relatively. Um, tough circumstances and uh, to make the best of um, what generally is a relatively difficult food source, but they thrive on, sort of almost is a symbol of modern Australia. Um, 
one of the interesting things is the way that um, there's a bit I didn't realise, and I'm sort of glad that um, my kids are not going to schoolies at the moment because apparently amongst the schoolies that attend the Surfers Paradise, there now is a bit of a trend for uh, ibis tattoos. Um, and, of course, there's a whole bunch of toys and um, symbols. The um, There was, a, 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 you know, there's a, a huge amount of positive... Um, in the the Bird of Australia competition, the online competition where people voted, the the uh, the, the um, bin chicken was way up there, very close to the top, and was um, well in much the same way yes. that they got into the garbage. People got into the back end of that and started voting multiple times to get them over the line. But not everyone loves them, Brendan. Almost no, ten thousand people registered for the International Glare at Ibises Day in Sydney on December twenty first, two thousand sixteen. I don't know whether that's become a annual event. We'll have to check it out on December twenty one this year. But the event organisers asked people to gather in their local park and glare and show general distaste towards ibises. I don't. Yeah. I think that might be going just a bit too far. Yes. It is a um, it's a lovely article. This isn't it, Mark, and, and it also has a uh, two two videos there, which which um, had well actually three, which um, two, two of them I thought were hilarious, and one was a a, a little cartoon um, called Bin Chicken Season One Episode One, and the second one is a is a takeoff of the Planet oh, Earth yes. series. That's the, the bin, Planet Earth presents Bin Chicken, and I urge all our listeners to jump onto our vetgurus.com website and just click on the link to the Bin Chickens, the rise of the Bin Chickens, and then it will bring take you to the conversation.com and just scroll down and you'll be able to click on that um, video there. It's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's hilarious. I loved it. Yeah. So the Bin Chickens, yes. And they, they certainly are, um, more and more, um, prevalent in the Melbourne region. And obviously a lot of this, um, I think this article, um, has pictures from mainly Sydney and, um, your region. Mark, do you say, have, have lots of them roaming around the urban areas of Newcastle? Well, as you know, I tend to get out on Hexham Swamp and try and find myself some, you know, uh, uh unusual water birds. And I do see large numbers of them there. They, they're not as urbanized, shall we say, in the, uh, lower Hunter, certainly not like in Sydney where um, uh, where I was um, visiting recently and um, found them nesting in a date palm in an industrial site. So they just definitely have made the adaptation to city life, Brendan. So, um, yeah, I love that article. It's a good one. Um, last article is a really quick one and um, I'm trying to be positive. So this is a little good news story, Mark. The tiger population rebounds nearly doubling in Nepal, um, which is really good news. So the number of wild tigers in Nepal has nearly doubled over the past nine years as a result of conservation efforts. And the survey carried out earlier this year found 235 tigers in Nepal, up from just 121 mark in 2009. So that's fantastic. And um, the the interesting thing I found about this article was the, the way they did the count. Um, the conservationists and wildlife experts used more than 4,000 cameras, Mark, um, ahead most of them those sort of time-lapse ones and those sort of activated ones when movement goes past travelling 2,700 2,700 kilometre route across Nepal's southern plains where most of the big cats are found and um, it was good news Ben that's it. and Nepal's and a dozen other countries signed the 2010 Tiger Conservation Plan pledging to double the tiger population by 2022 and since, since then the tiger population which had been decimated by deforestation, loss of habitat and poaching, has begun to show positive changes. And, um, yeah, it's a pretty good news story, this, Mark. So it's a pretty significant increase, isn't it, from 200 to 235 from 121, so almost doubling there in um, since 2009. So there we go. We end on a on a good news story, Mark. And it is a good story, well, Brendan. I'm going to um, – our main topic this week is one you've suggested, Mark, so I'm going to do the usual with um, my um, ill – 
prepared preparation for this and um, just quiz you on it. And the topic this week is megabacteria in our little feathered friends, Mark. So let's jump in to the topic and question number one is what is it? What is megabacteria? It's an excellent question, Brendan. And the, the one of the reasons that it's an excellent question is because for a long time we didn't know and uh, megabacteria uh, was the name given to it by in the dim dark ages way back in the 90s um, a lot of avian vets would um, gram stain the stools of the birds that they were doing physical examinations on and uh, obviously this um, this uh, diagnostic procedure has well may not have been quite as useful as we imagined it was once. And so it's not done quite as often anymore. Um, it has more specific use rather than being a general diagnostic tool. But in doing that, um, many uh, vets in Australia came across what appeared to be a very large um, gram-positively staining bacteria. And because of its you know, um, relatively large size, uh, maybe... Um, 20 to 80 times the size of a cocky form bacteria, um, it um, it uh, initially grabbed the name megabacteria. But after, over time, it was obviously discovered that it was a, a yeast, um, Macrorhabdus ornithogaster. Um, and um, depending on what part of the world you live in, um, uh, the, it might be known as Macrorhabdus or megabacteria, or oftentimes it's referred to as... Um, as uh, Avian yes. gastric yeast, um, yes. AGY. Um, so uh, it's a yeast that infects um, uh, birds, many of our cage birds, particularly budgerigars, finches, canaries, and lovebirds, um, and um, and a spattering of other species under other circumstances. Um, and it really is a very common thing to find, uh, at least in our part of the world, in avian practice, Brendan. So... What do you call it? Of all those names, what's your short name for it? <laughs> what do you just call it? Megabacteria, A-G-Y? Well, I th- I, I, I'm having to backtrack so much in this podcast tonight. Um, I, I, you know I am a, I'm a little bit of a pedant, so I really prefer to call things by their correct name. Um, so routinely I would call it Macrorhabdus, but when you're talking to clients, um there's sometimes some things that you have to bend to make sure they that you connect with them, Brendan, that you let them know you know what you're talking about. So uh, most clients look at me with that uh, blank stare absent of understanding when I go, your bird has macrorhabdus. Whereas if I say megabacteria, well, generally they jump a little bit and they're much more interested in a conversation. Their eyes are more expressive, Brendan. So what do I call it? Macrorhabdus. What do I call it when I'm talking to the clients? Megabacteria. When I, what do I call it when I talk to Americans? Avian gastric yeast. Ah, now that's confused at all, Mark. So which species do you see this um, little yeasty organism this yeasty, most commonly in? This yeasty beastie um, most commonly occurs yeah. in, in budgerigars, in my experience. Um, obviously, uh, that's a little bit of a, I would have to do a statistical analysis because budgerigars would be one of the most common birds that we get to see. So it's not a big surprise that we get to, um, that they, they would represent a significant proportion of the birds affected by macrorhabdus. Um, the, there is a particular population of uh, budgerigars, those English show budgerigars, the ones that are slightly larger, have more feathers, um, they're a little bit less active, they have altered immunity, and those birds seem to uh, be exceedingly susceptible to macrorhabdus, and very often they carry the organism uh, much more easily than other birds. And so um, definitely... uh, a bird with the typical clinical signs of the uh, English show budgie variety, um, they are, that would be well, well up there. You know, it's our first differential to rule out. They've got macrorhabdus until proven otherwise in my mind. And so how would I prove it, Brendan? How would I um, uh, diagnose the um, 
Yes. The, the uh, birds that have macrorhabitus. It's a fecal smear. When we first, when I first started uh, looking for this organism, I did do the whole um, gram stain routine, um, and I'd get my fingers all purple and iodine coloured, and um, and uh, it'd take about fifteen minutes, and and uh, that inconvenience led me to um, pay much more attention to my smears. And now I feel pretty confident that um, uh, moving the objective up and down a little bit, trying to catch uh, um, refractile um, the refractile edge of the organism in the the uh, saline solution I've smeared the I've suspended the fecal smear in. Um, I reckon I can pick it up most of the time. It looks like a paddle pop stick in proportion, um, so it's relatively long. Sometimes a little bit bent but often very straight they sometimes form palisades um, where there's uh, you know it almost looks like a, a little fence um, so uh, I reckon most of them we can diagnose that way there are certain birds definitely um, because the organism infects the isthmus between the two parts of their stomach that's its sort of favored location um, and the uh, the bird, there are many birds that have infections that don't necessarily throw um, uh, excess yeast out in the stool. And so repeated fecal samples are important. And there are a couple of birds that I have not diagnosed until we've done a, a post-mortem on them. So would you recommend this as a screen? Would you? So if you had a species of bird that came in that you saw like the um that that commonly has this as a clinical syndrome um would you be screening every new patient that comes in of this particular species of bird? I, I definitely would brendan i think it's a there's a couple of things i i think um you know screening tests uh in trying to provide clients with excellent veterinary medicine. I think we do have to do a little bit of a, an assessment about how useful screening tests are. And um, in some of the areas of avian medicine, it is a little bit of a, you know, do we do screening tests for chlamydia, for example? It's a little bit controversial. But I think um, in this instance, uh, certainly for um, English show budgerigars, uh, I have no doubt that um, routine faecal smears examined to assess whether they do have uh, megabacteria before they entered a flock is a very, very uh, uh, justifiable um, uh, screening tool. So do um, what do you tell the client then if you screen their little avian friend and it comes back negative on the faecal and this bird is a, apparently healthy? Um, what's your recommendation? Well, that's a good question. Um, do you mean do, do what do you say to them? Do you say, "Oh, we're we're, we're running a fecal on your bird for for doing a bit of a screen for intestinal parasites, but we're also looking for uh, our avian gastric yeast or our little yeasty friend, and it has come back neck. There's no signs of our little yeasty friend on there. What do you then mention to the client if they say, "Well, is he clear for that?" Um, well, I think that um, I, I warned them that. Uh that any screening test is not one hundred percent, but I would be, I would be pretty confident um, that um, I'd be happy to uh, have a bird that didn't have any signs on their stools and no, and was well otherwise. Most of the birds who I find didn't have any in their stools, uh, and they usually have really really sick birds. Um, and so I think there's some process about the um, development of the pathology that um, re gets them to reach a point where they're not passing the organism. So I would feel pretty confident if I had a physically healthy bird and a clear smear suggesting such a bird uh, presents exceptionally low risk to their flock. And what are the classic signs then of these birds? when they're unwell with this condition, mate? Well, the classic signs are all associated with the gastrointestinal tract, Brendan. They, um, these birds are, uh, the yeasts interfere with the normal motility of the stomach and they seem to, um, 
as well interfere with the normal absorption through the gastrointestinal tract. Though when histopathology is done, it doesn't appear that the yeasts are colonising the gastrointestinal tract. So I don't know that anyone specifically knows how that happens. But these birds gradually waste away. Um, They are um, birds that just get um, thinner and thinner and thinner. They often eat very well. Um, They'll often pass... um, you know, uh, stools that are voluminous, um, and sometimes they even pass stools that contain whole seed. Um, and the birds are, uh, for the large, for, particularly in the early stages of disease, they're enthusiastic in their attempts to make up for the energy deficit that failure to absorb causes. So um, they're they're um, poor doers. They waste away. They um. They uh, get very, very thin. The keel sticks it. That some of the budgerigars that have had this condition um, in my hands have been some of the most dramatic knife sh- knife uh, type keels uh, with virtually no pectoral muscle mass on them at all um, that I've ever seen. Yes. And what would your second highest percentage species and the second the species that you'd see with this infection um well the the most common commonly second gee i really (laughs) butchered that didn't i mark i'm going to leave that in and we won't edit that out at all so what's number Number two two, uh um, canaries and finches um we definitely see um particularly canaries um uh, they're the the species that um i probably see this in um second most commonly, um, and uh, lovebirds, particularly the peach-faced lovebird. Um, and I think um, I've got a little bit of a theory about peach-faced lovebirds. There's a number of diseases that seem to be associated with um, uh, an immune-modulating um condition. I don't know whether it's genetic. I don't know whether it's viral. I know a lot of work has been done to try and identify a viral cause of immune suppression in um, in uh, uh, lovebirds, um, also to identify a viral cause of, um, of uh, some forms of feather destructive behaviour. And none of those have been successful at this stage, but um, those immune suppressed lovebirds do seem to be um, a... Uh, uh, a class of birds we see uh, very frequently as well. Interestingly enough, Brendan, I don't know whether you know yes. this, but um, uh, nowhere else in the world does um, does Macrorhabdus occur in wild birds. It's a and it's an Australian um, uh, uh, an Australian organism. It's ours. We've given it to the world, Brendan. And we're proud of it. You can tell by my tone and of voice. And we're proud of it, yes. Now, so you have have a bird that you're highly suspicious it has this condition as a clinical infection and clinical signs, but you don't see it on the faecal. What's your next step? Well, the, and how often would that occur? Um, it, it, would, it would occur, definitely occur, I would be estimating maybe um, one in 20 to one in 40 cases that I have a strong suspicion. Um, And I generally uh, am happy to suggest to the people, if the bird is going into a collection, then I suggest they quarantine it. If it's that um, ill um, that I can clinically detect um, changes to its keel that are dramatic and I can see its behaviour has changed and it has undigested seed in its stool. Even if I can't find macroabdus on a smear, I would ask those people to separate the bird and I would review the stools over the ensuing six weeks or so, um, trying with repeat stools to identify um, uh, any of the organisms. And the other thing I would say is that um, there is no... uh, you know that you we've talked many times about uh, examining the stools of uh, of our exotic pets and um we often have the turn of phrase that um that there is a normal um amount of an organism that uh, we would accept for many of our exotic pets and it's only when things are wrong and the numbers rise that we see that as pathology any of these organisms, even finding one, is an indication that something is wrong. These are not commensals. They invariably cause disease when they're present. 
Yes. And are there many of them where you bother trying to then do a crop flush or something like that or not? Um, no. Um, crop flushes, are, they're, they're always a useful um, uh, – if I've got a bird that does have a digestive problem, um, doing a, a – a, um, uh, a flush through the crop with a crop needle does give me um, useful information and particularly about organisms like trichomonas. Um, but oftentimes I find to be, once again, I'm, I, I'm using personal experience. I would say that 90% of the birds that have digestive disturbance, which manifests itself as crop disease or crop stasis, um, those bird, the crop is not the primary problem. It's the thing that we see because it's so obvious on the outside of the neck. Um, but most of those birds will have disease in other locations. It would be very common for us with a, a chicken, for example, um, that has severe um, uh, egg yolk coelomitis and so severe inflammatory disease in the coelom um, to have profound crop stasis. And the client may bring us the bird initially to treat the fact that the crop's not emptying. Um, but the reason it's not emptying is because there's severe disease elsewhere. So with this one, there are times when the crop won't empty because there's problems in the stomachs. Um, but usually a crop wash itself is not much use for diagnosis. So what other techniques have you got for diagnosis, Mark? Is there a, is there a test you can do apart from the crop, uh, apart from the faecal? No, there's pretty much not, Brent. Well, faecal or um, post-mortem examination. Of, yes. Uh, <laughs> histopathological ex assessment of post-mortem samples. Um, no, the, the uh, uh, faecal smear is the, the gold standard um, with um, uh, macrorhabdus. So what are the classic, so we do a necropsy on, on one of these suspect cases. Um, what are the classic signs you see, apart from the obvious, seeing the organisms? Um, what grossly do you, would you see in a classic case? Well, there's two things that stand out. Um, there is um, often some changes to the lining of the, the um of the uh, muscular stomach, the gizzard, um, the ventriculus. So the ventriculus has a lining, which in birds affected by macrorhabdus, this lining can often appear to be peeling away or not firmly attached. Um, there are often um, uh, gastrointestinal ulcers, either, funnily enough, the, the location histopathologically where these organisms are found is the isthmus between the proventriculus and the ventriculus. Um, they probably reflux into the proventriculus, but um, uh, intestinal um, ulcers are a common consequence as well. And so on post-mortem, many of the severely affected birds will, um, will have developed melina because they have intestinal ulceration. And, um, and so uh, those birds can have that, you know, those dilated loops of intestine with uh, big black um, con big black um, fluid contents indicating they've had some hemorrhage. Hmm. So can you fix it and how? You can fix it, Brendan. You definitely can fix it. Um, and uh, I suppose the, the caveat to my enthusiasm for treatment um, is that there are certainly, um, you know, I highlighted the lovebirds before, but there are probably... In there are definitely a budgerigars who just have macrorhabdus, and that's the they've been contaminated, they've gotten infected, and that's it. But I do, uh, I have been seeing an increasing number of birds who uh, respond poorly to treatment, um, and on more extensive workup, we find that their disease processes are. Uh, you know, they have superimposed viral infections. Um, so I would always um, uh, talk to clients that I'm about to undergo treatment for their birds. I'd always talk to them about, um, you know, the possibility that uh, we're going to treat this obvious disease. And if that's the only thing there, it'll work well. Um, but if there are underlying other problems, we may have to consider our position a little bit down the track. And what, and what is your treatment? Well, I tend to uh, use 
amphotericin. Um, uh, there's a number of forms that we can use, but I like to, um, there's a, a, a commercial, uh, for humans, there's a, a commercial um, lozenge that uh that contains amphotericin B that's used to treat uh, oral candidiasis. Um, and these fungal and lozenges can be um, ground up in a mortar and pestle and made into a solution that we can provide to people. We have, over the last uh, five years, been, um, well, trialling um, some of the, uh, the... There is some talk of using sodium benzoate um, as a treatment and Dr. Uh, Phelan at the University of Sydney um, has been um, uh, doing some work to try and uh, categorise it, uh, trying to quantify a treatment that uses sodium benzoate. When I've used that treatment in um, in budgerigars, it's, it's a very distasteful um, antifungal chemical that goes into the drinking water and the birds will often... Well, it's hard to make to get them to drink it. Um, so uh, the, I don't, I can't say that I've had outstanding success. I've definitely had some very successful cases, uh, but as a uh, more recently, I've returned to water soluble amphotericin. So, do you, are you mainly recommending that in the water, as you just mentioned, or or um, per or so individually dosing each? Well, it depends a little bit on the circumstance because obviously if I've got a aviary full of 100 birds, 100 budgerigars, um, then then uh, individual per or treatment is going to be difficult, so we would treat those birds. Um, and it becomes an interesting medical quandary because there's a bit of a spectrum, I suppose. At one end, we are treating an individual bird and we're... Um, providing an individual per os dose. Um, but then at the other end of the spectrum, we're treating the flock itself. And um, part of that treatment um, may be in water medication and part of the treatment may be culling um, the birds that, uh, you know, that um, are, are problematic. Um, so it is an interesting disease in that um, uh, it encompasses both specific individual treatment and flock um, uh, medicine. And what is it? Is is the general recommendation thirty days or so? Is it is sort of the minimum? Is that at, um, the current recommendations, Mike, or is it longer than that? The the, 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 um, the it's a very difficult question to answer, Brendan, because um, in line with I suppose many of the um, the treatment recommendations we make for our avian and exotic pets, there's not a whole lot of solid research data to say what happens in large numbers of animals. I definitely have had uh, birds, uh, cage birds, so we've followed individual birds um, who uh, I ha have cleared with 10 days of treatment. Um, and then there are other cases where um, we feel um, there's a number of published um, reports which suggest you've got to go for 30 days to um, have a significant guarantee of uh, resolution when you're using amphotericin. Um, I, it's a it's a um, treat and retest and decide whether to retreat type arrangement, Brendan. So those ones that you maybe stop in. At a, um, after 10, 10, 14 days or whatever, is that, is that just based on the fact that you, you're seeing clinical improvement and you're seeing a negative on that fecal? Yeah, there's two aspects to the fecal in these birds. Definitely the absence of organisms, that's like, you know, the, the, um, the best bit. Yes, um, yeah. But we also, uh, when we do a fecal smear, we make a little bit of an assessment about the patterns of digestion um, in the remnant material that the bird has ingested. And so um, I, I, it is a definitely a subjective assessment. It's not like we give them a, um, you know, a, uh, it's not like us scoring movies or doing reviews where we've got a very precise number to work with, Brendan. It's, um, it's just, you know, good digestion, uh, average digestion and not very good digestion. But if we see a tendency to see less undigested food coupled with an absence of the organism and we've been treating for two weeks, well, there's most of those cage birds we would stop at that point and watch what happens. Yes. And any other sort of antifungals that are, are, are still used? 
because I think that um, this uh, this group of birds who failed to respond, um, that's uh, and sometimes I think. Uh, the intermittent availability of a suitable uh, amphotericin product to use um, has led people to look for other medications that might be suitable. Um, and um, and I suppose that's part of what um, has had people looking at things like... Um, uh, like sodium benzoate, um, but I have I haven't um, had a chance to use um, some of the other uh, medications. There are anecdotal stories of people using things like terbenafin, nystatin, and yep. nystatin. I think yep. at one stage, um, yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely nystatin's been largely. Uh, um, discredited, I think it doesn't have a particular effect on this yeast. So I don't think that um, that it's a particularly good one to use. But I have uh, read a couple of reports of fluconazole being used. Um, uh, so I think um, the jury's out on the definitive treatment, um, and I don't know that any of those uh, that we've listed is sort of categorically the gold standard. And um, while at the moment I'm happy to use amphotericin, I'm, I'm, I'm equally happy to be convinced that sodium benzoate or another might be better for us in the future. Interesting, Mark. So bottom line with the use of the amphotericin is that it's, if, if, correct me if I'm incorrect, Mark, is that there are no actual studies proving or, or demonstrating that you need to treat for a minimum number of X days with the, with that um, particular product. That's is my that understanding, correct? Brendan. I'm uh, unaware of any studies which show um, that there is a, um, a, a minimum treatment length, which is, um, which is you know, um, I've always used 10 days as a guide, um, but I definitely have gone up to... Um, uh, 14 regularly, th two weeks, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, even up to 30 days in some cases. So wrapping this up, Mark, my, my final question would be, and let's stick to, say, the individual um, yes. um, patient rather than a, an aviary, um, can it recur? <sighs> Do you? How often would you see it recurring or does the vast majority of them that you treat um, go on and and fly off into the into the well into the end into their little aviary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would I would say that um, the simple cases, uh, the vast majority of them, once we have um, negative fecals and they're putting weight on and uh, showing good patterns of digestion, it tends not to be something. Uh, with the individual bird that recurs, but in a an aviary situation or those birds that have super infections with uh, viral diseases, then it definitely is something that can raise its ugly head. And probably the lovebirds are the ones that stand out to me there more more often than not. That um, that I've had uh, birds that so, so has it, sorry Mark. Um, so has anybody? Are there any studies of of even anecdotal of, of people that have treated these birds um, that have apparently responded and, and down the track done necropsies on them and, and had a look to see whether there was any any of the um, macrohab. I think there is. There. I think there is some studies that are exactly of that nature, um, and the the uh, uh, particularly um, if if I remember correctly, the one I'm thinking of there was uh, amphotericin, and the birds were. Um, free of infection at that um, uh, post-mortem histopathology. Ah, good. Well, I think we've run out of time, Mark. So um, do you want to have any closing words about um, the mega yeast bacteria, AGY, ain't doing right <laughs> birds with the um, sloppy droppings and wasting well, The only other thing I'd say is that we've really focused on... Um, you know, our uh, cage birds, um, but it definitely uh, is turning up in other species in, you know, very low, um, you know, and there's lots of anecdotal reports of them showing up in other parrot species. Um, we've seen them in eastern rosellas and, uh, um, and other Australian birds. They 
the wild birds that um, seem to carry them with minimal effect are uh, uh, cockatoos, sulfur-grassed cockatoos and galahs. Um, so I think keeping, um, you know, wildlife carers that have those birds should keep them away from other birds. Um, but there has been recent reports of them in affecting birds um, uh, outside the parrot family, um, um, in particular um, pigeons, which is hardly a surprise, but also um, a couple of ratites, um, ostriches and rears have uh, come down with uh, macrorhabdus infection. So I think it's important to keep in mind macrorhabdus, even if you're not necessarily dealing with one of those English show budgerigars and um, always when looking at faecal smears of, of avian species other than our parrots, um, just watch out for those big paddle pop stick shaped organisms. Mm. So, interestingly, you mentioned ratites and ostriches. Considering the Australian link, are there any reports of it in I'm the I'm unaware. Email? We'll have to hit up. You know who we'll have to hit up to answer that question, don't you? Yes, um, But yes. I'm, I, I can yes. honestly say I'm unaware of any um, reports of it occurring in the emu, but I will defer to... Um, to our wonderful friend Doug, and oh, we'll hit him up with a little bit of a uh, um, a question to see whether he's if anyone's seen it. Doug will have seen it. Yes, he would have no doubt. Mark the emu, the emu. Yes. Well, thank you for listening, and um, yeah, Verity, please send us an email so we can send you out your prize with the details of your um, address, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.